that William Shakespeare poem, The Seven Ages of Man, is part of the play As You Like It, where Jacques makes a dramatic speech in the presence of the Duke in Act Two, Scene Seven. Through the voice of Jack, Shakespeare sends out a profound message about life and our role in it. In the poem, the author describes each human as a player who plays many parts. A man's life was expressed into seven different ages within the poem, which have different roles on each, starting from an infant until an incompetent man. The theme of the poem is change, or more descriptively, the changes in life caused by the time and the stages referred to as infant, schoolboy, lover, soldier, justice, pantaloon, a 16th century slang for an old man, an old age. Hello and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. I suppose, from Shakespeare's perspective, I am a pantaloon. And over the last week, I've spoken to fellow pantaloons, photographers in their mid-fifties. In fact, I've spoken to two photographers specifically that I thought the conversation was worth sharing with you. One photographer was 53. The other was 55. They're both male and they're both very successful in what they do. But they're looking to change, or at least to move into other areas. They're feeling at that age, in their 50s, that having spent 20 or 30 years working within the area that they are still working within, perhaps it's time to change. Time to reassess and perhaps move into other areas, explore those other areas. But the discussion I had with them perhaps brought a little bit of reality to the situation, which is that it's very difficult to reinvent yourself in your 50s. And also that many photographers that I have spoken to and I have known over the last 30 odd years have gone through exactly that same, I suppose in a way, kind of period of limbo. They've been doing something for a long time and they're really good at it. But times have changed and moved on, and suddenly they're a lot older than the people who are commissioning. They're not part of that scene, part of those parties. They don't have those social and cultural connections with the people who are commissioning any longer, the ones they had when they were at a similar age to the people they were working with in the industry. But not only that, they're not quite yet at that point where they become, I suppose in a way, respected for their age. That suddenly the work becomes historically important and then becomes recognised again. That seems to happen for some photographers in their mid-60s, into their 70s and even into their 80s. I've spoken previously about my conversations with the photographer Colin Jones and how there was a whole period where he just couldn't get work or get recognised. And I could name many other photographers whom I've had the same conversation with. In a different conversation with a different photographer in the past week, uh, who was interviewing me actually for uh, another podcast, they asked me a very interesting question, which was how would my wife describe me? And one of the words I came up with was strategic. And I, th I think I am strategic. I always think on the basis of 10-year plans, that idea of thinking, where am I going to be in 10 years and how do I get there? Well, 
That is something that I think a lot of photographers face in their 50s. Suddenly 60 is coming up or maybe 55 is coming up and they start thinking, what's next? I haven't really got any answers for that this week. And obviously all conversations I have with people are always private and always bespoke to the person because everybody's situation is different. However, my answer to these photographers has been similar. The key to building that plan, I believe, is to work backwards. Where do you want to be in 10 years and how are you going to get there? That requires research. It requires, in a way, going back to how you looked at things at the beginning. Building a database, finding out who you want to work for, where do you want your work to be seen, how do you want your work to be seen, and I suppose most importantly, how do you want to continue earning a living? I'm not going to say it's easy, but I think after the conversations I've had over the last week, the photographers I spoke to now understand that it is possible. There's been a lot of talk on Twitter in particular over the last couple of weeks about the role of the photographer in documenting situations of tragedy and conflict and hurt and using those situations to create images which are then put on sale in inappropriate um, platforms and situations. And I wanted to read you something uh, this week that I thought was quite interesting. It goes like this. There's an unhealthy trend in contemporary photography. Photographers seem to believe that in order to produce a telling piece of photo reportage, they must merely capture cruel close-ups of ugly faces in the street. People in compromising situations or accidents of juxtaposition that make the subject appear ridiculous. All these pictures tell me is that the photographer is an unthinking, insensitive picture pariah. There is no merit whatsoever in singling out the aged, ugly or embarrassed and merely making a record of their affliction or discomfort and pretending the pictures are significant statements about man. These photographs are about as significant as the hair in people's noses. Cruel pictures under the guise of truth are not only degrading but dangerous. They can so easily be used as weapons by the anti-photography establishment as proof that the camera is a crude mechanical tool used by insensitive morons, with some justification. There is only one answer to this trend. Each photographer must understand that he is not working in isolation, but that every time he lifts his camera in public, he is an enacting ambassador for photography. He must have the honesty to examine his own motives and attitudes before exploiting the weaknesses of his subjects. He must have the courage to stop taking pictures as well as the courage to seize the pictures that reveal a human truth. The dividing line between sheer cruelty and an honest comment is impossible to define. The photographer's only guide is his integrity. That was written by Bill J. December 1968. The constant references to he, I suppose, are a telling damnation of the fact that it should have been more inclusive as a piece of writing. I don't condone that. But what I do recognise is that 
Sometimes photography does not learn from history and the same conversations are constantly being had. I think it's time to listen and change. A photographer that certainly brings integrity to his work joins us this week to explain what photography means to him in under five minutes. Shane Rochelot is that photographer who received an MFA from the Virginia Commonwealth Institute and is an American photographer whose work confronts the endemic position of toxic masculinity and white supremacy within the American experience. His work has been exhibited in the United States, Spain, Russia, Brazil, Australia, Ukraine, the United Kingdom, India and Germany. And his photographs have been featured in a wide variety of online and print publications, including Aperture's The Photo Book Review, Dear Dave magazine, The Heavy Collective Paper Journal and The Washington Post. Three monographs of his work have been published. The first, You Are Masters of the Fish and Birds and All the Animals, in 2018, The Reflection in the Pool, 2019, and Lakeside, 2022. And his work is held in collections within the Museum of Modern Art, the Vogue Italia Collection, Fondazione Teatro Reggio di Parma, and Tate Britain, amongst others. He currently lives and works in Richmond, Virginia. I think I'm better at answering questions asked of me. Uh, The soliloquy just isn't working. So here I go. Shane, what does photography mean to you? Hmm. It's a really good question. You know, I, I think when I was young, religion was likely where I found my my meaning. I think it was sort of placed there for me to to look to in times of crisis or when I perhaps feared death or, or whatnot. Um, and, and I think it was like that for so many people, and it still is. Um, but I lost my religion. Uh, I can remember when that happened. It started in seventh grade. It seemed that no one could answer my questions about good and evil. Uh, good and evil were what made up the universe, and... How dare you question that? And by 10th or 11th grade, it was gone. And then a couple of years later, sports were gone. And so where was I to turn? I began writing. I think that gave me something, but I found photography on a road trip right after college. And I don't think I knew how to describe it then, but I describe it now as having found a way to make meaning in the absence of it. And photography remains that to me today. I think without it, I would be constantly floating in some liminal space. But with it, I'm able to avoid that liminal space, at least avoid it in ways that I couldn't without that meaning. So what does photography mean to me? It, it means that I have, beyond my family, a reason to live, uh, something to look to in order to... I guess, escape what otherwise would be um, my own personal nihilism. Uh, So thanks for asking, Grant. I hope that suffices. It certainly does, Shane, and thank you very much for your contribution this week. Once again, that simple question, really getting to the heart of why Shane takes photographs and what it means to him. 
It's funny, isn't it, how such a simple question, you'd think that we all asked it of ourselves very early on when we first began. But actually, of course, we don't. We just, I suppose, just find ourselves moving forward with photography and rarely take that, um, that break and step back and ask ourselves, I was asked uh, in the last week, that interview again that I mentioned earlier in this episode, the person who was interviewing me asked me what um, photography meant to me. And I was able to answer it because uh, previously my uh, 10-year-old daughter had asked me the same question. And I'd answered with one word then, and I answered uh, in this interview this week with exactly the same word, history. I spoke at the beginning of this episode in The Seven Ages of Man, of course, at Seven Ages of Women also. But when we're talking about history, there's so much that we can learn, I believe, uh, in the way in which we listen to history and, and try and use it to shape where we are today and where we're going. That Bill J. A piece of writing there from the past pointed to something that never happened. And I read something else uh, in the last week or so uh, from a magazine, actually Wired magazine from 1997. And the uh, article was titled, uh, Wired magazine predicts 10 things that could go wrong in the 21st century. 10 scenario spoilers, they said. The long boom is a scenario, one possible future. It's built upon the convergence of many big forces and even more little pieces falling into place, all of them with a positive twist. The future, of course, could turn out to be very different, particularly if a few of those big pieces go haywire. Here are 10 things that could cut short the long boom of the 90s. They suggested, number one, tensions between China and the US could escalate into a new Cold War. Number two, new technologies turn out to be a bust. They simply don't bring the expected productivity increases or the big economic boosts. Number three, Russia devolves into a kleptocracy run by a mafia or retreats into quasi-communist nationalism that threatens Europe. Number four, Europe's integration process grinds to a halt. Eastern and Western Europe can't finesse a reunification, and even the European Union process breaks down. Number five, major ecological crisis causes a global climate change that, among other things, disrupts the food supply, causing big price increases everywhere and sporadic famines. Number six, major rise in crime and terrorism. Number seven, the cumulative escalation in pollution. Number eight, energy prices go through the roof. Convulsions in the Middle East disrupt the oil supply and alternative energy sources fail. Number nine, an uncontrollable plague, a modern day influenza epidemic or its equivalent takes off like wildfire, killing upward of 200 million people. A social and cultural backlash stops progress dead in its tracks. Human beings need to choose to move forward. They just may not. That was number 10. If that isn't proof that we as visual communicators should learn from the past or at least listen to what's being said in the future, then I don't know what is. Let me just remind you, that was written in 1997. I previously mentioned that I will be part of a two-day uh, 
conference talking about Bill J, uh, Tony Ray Jones and their infamous trip to New York in 1968 as part of a, a bigger event. Well, the information for that has now been released. Uh, the title of the conference is British Photography Since 1972, a conference, and that will be taking place on Friday the 1st of July and uh, Saturday the 2nd of July. And that will be at the Royal Photographic Society down in Bristol. You can find out more about that and book tickets at rps.org. It sounds like a a fascinating event. Just to read from their description, it says uh, the Royal Photographic Society's historical group was formed in uh, 1972 at a time when photography in Britain was undergoing a significant transition. The RPS itself was in a process of modernisation as it sought to remain relevant to British photography. The period also saw major upheavals for the industry and the profession with recessions, a move to digital and new ways for commissioners to source content. The way photography has been experienced, shared and disseminated has changed dramatically over that period. And this conference will examine some of these changes through a series of papers that look at British photography and photographers over the past 50 years, so from 1972 to 2022. So you need to book for that. It is uh, in person, but I do understand that it will be uh, perhaps live streamed, but definitely uh, recorded. So um, I think that's one to check out. It's only one I'm looking forward to. Uh, participating in. And I have to say, it's got a bit of a challenge for me because I'm very used to standing up and giving talks and and kind of just making it up as I go along, really. I never really write anything down. Um, But I think I'm going to have to be a little bit more structured for uh, this particular event. So we'll have to see how that goes. Anyway, uh, I hope the uh, podcast this week hasn't been too interrupted by the rain on the roof of the shed. It's been a little bit heavier. It's just seemed to never stop raining recently, and I was waiting for it to stop, and it wouldn't. So I thought I'll record the podcast anyway, and we can have some ambient sounds. As always, the birds twittering away and the rain on the roof. Uh, Once again, I referenced the person who came to interview me. They actually came and saw the shed and uh, were able to confirm that it is exactly that. This podcast is a shed cast, as it was once called, uh, but I hope nonetheless enjoyable for that. So I hope there's been a few things to think about this week. Uh, As always, it's not your average photography uh, podcast. We don't talk about Photoshop or new kit, and uh, it isn't two guys uh, drinking coffee and kind of slapping each other on the back. I think we're far more, uh, hopefully far more, an arm around the shoulder, and I hope you feel that also. Uh, Take care. (laughs) 